Thank you so very much for listening to Signal Fire Radio over the past year. As a gift to you, we want to give you this exclusive sneak peek of a story about love, corruption, and redemption. And be sure to look out for our future content that will be exclusive to Patreon. We want to thank you and wish you a very Merry Christmas from the entire Signal Fire crew. We have some amazing guests here with us today. Uh, first, Beth Curtis, Paul Free, and then uh, a gentleman that you all should know by now because it was the most downloaded episode yet of Signal Fire Radio is Peter McGuire. Now, Peter, you you wanted us to talk to Beth and Paul. Absolutely. So honestly, I'm maybe we'll ask a couple well-timed questions. Sure. But as far as I'm concerned, this is your episode. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> um, I thought, you know, given that we had the, the Marines' birthday and Veterans' Day this week, um, I... I thought it was important to bring a veteran of the war on drugs. My mm -hmm. friend Paul Free here uh, served 25 years for marijuana. Um, my hero here, Beth Curtis, has done more to get life uh, people serving life sentences for marijuana out of prison than probably anyone in the United States. Um, her brother, John Nock, was um, sentenced to a double life sentence for a conspiracy that never took place. Um, in probably the most egregious injustice in the, in the war on drugs, in my opinion. Um, I'll probably be writing about that soon. Um, and as we lurch towards legal marijuana and um, Wall Street and these other Cretans that didn't risk anything uh, when the risks were penitentiary risks, um, I think we need to remember those who did the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, as North Carolina finally moves towards some sensible medical marijuana laws um, uh, that we need to kind of remember the past and remember the people that paid prices uh, for where we are today. And, um, and as I said, I, I, nobody's done more mm -hmm. to kind of rectify some of these things um, than Beth and, and Paul and I kind of share a common heritage. We're both from Southern California. Paul Surf spent a lot of time in Mexico as I did, and Baja um, Rosarita, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was uh, he was kind of the forefather of a very famous marijuana conspiracy uh, called the Coronado Company that was featured in my book Tie Stick. And uh, but their tradecraft wasn't up to Paul's standards, so he <laughs> cut them loose very early on, and probably wise because half of them wound up becoming. Confidential informants. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, and I think the thing that's really important that most people don't realize is that in the war on drugs, we really corrupted our criminal justice system because you faced a situation of either cooperating or um, if you chose to go to trial, uh, the stakes went way up. And um, a mandatory Paul, minimum of life. Yeah. So, and Paul went to trial mm -hmm. and obviously didn't got life. <laughs> yeah. So. It, can you, because we have uh, most of our listeners are in my age range, you know, mid 30s to late 40s. And so we were young when the war on drugs kind of was was pushed as policy. Yeah. Can you just kind of give us like an oral history just to remind us of how all of this started? And then and then I want to hear Paul's story. I, everybody chip in on it. Y'all were all I there. Can, so I can handle that part okay. quickly and then Beth can get into some of the injustices. But, um, you know, it's 
our wars on whatever tend not to go so well. Poverty, you know, drug, yeah. terror. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, uh, you know, it really begins with Nixon and, um, and it always is a situation where we're getting all these unintended consequences. So, you know, one of the first things they do is close the Mexican border. And that's what Nixon does. And so what does that do? It drives smugglers all over the world to get better pot. And so it gets more and more sophisticated. The big shift in my mind in the war on drugs is what, 88 when the, yeah. when the laws change. And that's when minimum mandatories come in and power shifts from judges to prosecutors. And so the key document in this era of, of criminal justice is your sentencing report where have you been a good boy? Have you cooperated enough? And even if you're a confidential informant, you don't really know whether they're gonna give you a good report or a bad report, and you're never really off the hook. I interviewed a confidential informant that was setting people up for a decade, and big people at great risk, and it, it just it really never ends. Once you're in, you're in, and so um, I call it casino justice, and that's what Beth's brother faced. And you can talk mm -hmm. a little bit about John's ridiculous case, yes. a tragic case. Um, my brother, in um, 1993, I remember, my mother had gone to Hawaii. John's wife was at the University of Hawaii, completing her Ph.D. And my mother came home, and I said, how is John? She said she hadn't seen him. And um, it was very strange. And shortly after that, my sister-in-law called and said that John had been indicted. This was in 1994, and he was missing. And I secretly hoped that he'd always be missing because he was indicted for a marijuana conspiracy, but at that time, the uh, indictment was not, we weren't able to know what was in it. So that's sort of when I started thinking about it. In 1996, he was arrested by Interpol in, in Paris where he was uh, at a payphone. Someone had, had called him and told him to, they were in trouble and would he answer the phone on the Champs-Élysées, and he did. And he was held in the Prison de la Santé in France for three years trying to keep from being extradited to the United States because he knew if he was extradited that he wouldn't testify and that he'd probably get a life sentence. So we went back and forth between to Paris to see him and to get make sure he had legal counsel and everything. Finally, in 1999, um, the French court said that he could be extradited, but he could not be sentenced to more than 20 years. So he arrived in Gainesville, Florida, which was where he was indicted. It was a state and a place he'd never lived or worked. And um, he was tried the next year, and his PSI, which is pre-sentence report, which is done by the prosecutors, or probation officer, they seem to be the same, um, said he was 
responsible for many hundreds of tons of marijuana that came into the, marijuana and hashish that were came into the United States and Canada, Europe and Australia, and he was sentenced without um, having that amount found by the jury. He was sentenced by the judge to two life terms plus 20 and had a ridiculous fine of over $1.4 billion. Could I jump in quickly? Yes, please do, because um, this is amazing. I mean, and it just go, it goes on and on and mm -hmm. on. And, um, you know, basically it was a bent cop who got busted for some coke uh, conspiracy, had a life sentence hanging over his head, and said, hey, I know mm -hmm. the biggest Started fingering people. around. Yeah. yeah. And then got one of his co-conspirators to turn. That's who lured him to the payphone. Um, so the only people who testified against him were federal agents mm -hmm. and confidential informants. There was no weight. There was no conspiracy. And since John finally got out after, I think, 27 years, President Trump pardoned him. Um, you know, he when I spoke to him on the phone, he said, yeah, once the guidelines shifted to life sentences, I didn't want um, I didn't I didn't want to do anything in the United States. And yes, he had been involved in the cannabis trade. There's no if, ands or buts about that. But he was a smart guy and he was a logistics operational guy, boats and, and that side of it. Um, one of his co-defendants was a guy named Claude DeBach who was a Frenchman, and um, he was represented by F. Lee Bailey. Bailey wound up getting disbarred over this case. Mm. Bailey wound up getting stock from DeBach in lieu of payment mm -hmm. that was, I think, valued at $6 million first. It was valued at $6 million, but uh, when the... And that agreement was made kind of secretly between the prosecutors... Bailey and a couple of the, and the judge in the judge's chambers without a court reporter. They decided that ba if Bailey could have the, I think it was biochem pharmaceutical stock. Yeah. It was Canadian stock. And um, when they found out that it had turned into 26 million. Once it got FDA approval. Yeah. They, <laughs> they, and they had a change of heart. And Bailey was in trouble. And Bailey went to went to prison. I he mean, did. He, he did sent, a month or something. Yeah, yeah, before he. And Bailey was the prosecutor. No, no, no. Bailey was the defense attorney. Oh, defense it was attorney. Effie Bailey, one of the most famous uh, criminal defense attorneys in American history. Wow. And at the top of his game, he at was that time, really good. Yeah. At that time, um, he was also uh, working on the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. And you'll see that in some of the documents that he. Or some of the letters that he wrote, he he talks about his difficulties with the OJ trial. I'm sure Claude was unimpressed because yeah. he was also he was paying him for his, but um, but the, it was a pretty corrupted thing, and it had a lot to do with money for mm -hmm. the for that that particular jurisdiction and also for the attorneys. Well, have, let me just one thing that's really important to know is that. When that those kind of amounts of money get seized, the big battle then becomes the battle between customs and mm -hmm. treasury and who's DEA taking it, right? And local law enforcement, and and they're getting sometimes twenty percent. Mm. So yes. we've completely broken our criminal justice system by incentivizing with cash 
Um, was all that a matter of policy? Like was – because my first question is what in the hell was our society doing? Like where where were concerned citizens from a policy level? Like were people behind this as a – I don't think a, people understand what yeah. conspiracy is. Mm-hmm. People – our conspiracy laws are so broad that anybody can be pulled into a – a criminal situation if they're even peripherally involved and they can be held responsible for everything that anybody did that they knew and they can receive big sentences and it's it's if they go to trial yeah um they'll get them mm-hmm. uh, if they're not willing to to tell a story that the prosecutors want them to tell about uh someone else and go to trial, they will be punished with the maximum sentence that they can give. Is it is it very difficult because they're trying to prove a negative? I guess the the person who's caught up in the conspiracy is that the way that the, this the justice is played out on this. They have to prove that they're not. <laughs> a it's, con- a, it's almost that way. Uh, jury tra- jurors don't want to believe that that people like prosecutors who are the system. officers of the court, yeah. that they will lie. They don't want to. Yeah. And they don't have to lie because they can get other people to, who are frightened of, of getting a sentence themselves. Mm-hmm. Lie for them. They will lie for them, <laughs> yes. Yes, and that's, and that's what happens. I, um, I, I, the, I started Life for Pot and started looking for people who had life sentences for marijuana only. And I just kept finding them. I didn't think I'd find any when I started. I thought it was impossible. (laughs) And uh, I found a lot of old marijuana smugglers who had smuggled tons and tons or were accused of that. But in the 80s, they were out in 10 years or five years or or less. But um, starting in the 90s, I found people who were nonviolent, marijuana only, and had life sentences. And the common thread was they went to trial. Mm. And so they exercised their constitutional rights. They exercised right. their constitutional right. rights. To, right. to face their accuser and have their day. Yeah. yeah. The second common thread is conspiracy because it's so easy to charge conspiracy. In my brother's case, there was no marijuana product they had nothing. There was no boat. Right. There was there no was, boat. There was right. Where did any evidence come into the case? Cooperating witnesses, witnesses. who were afraid that they would get, who, who were actually even Who were feds and informants, though. Or maybe not. They mm. were threatened with a life sentence. Mm. Yeah. And they had, to, they had to pretty much testify to a script. In fact, the main witness, who, when she was on the stand... My brother's attorney asked her what she was reading from. Wow. And she said, oh, this is, these are my notes. He said, did you write them? And she said, no. Um, <laughs> this was in front of the jury? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, that's pretty much the way it was. And, that, and that's, that's not the, at all. Yeah. You know? My brother also had the co-conspirator, who was Claude DeBach, had a European sensibility about justice and didn't have a clue about what the United States justice system was, system was. And he was taken to grand juries all over in, in the United States and Canada 
And he would testify to anything because they told him that um, if he did well, he'd get a three to five year sentence. In the end, he withheld a lot of money and he was sentenced to a life term also without going to trial or having a plea agreement. So that's possible. Because wow. he made a deal and he lied. He made a deal yeah. and he lied. And um, he shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I, you know, it's, it's hard to have a, a, a lot of empathy about that because he testified against so many people without even thinking about the veracity of mm. it. Mm-hmm. But that's the, that's our justice system. And her website, liferpot.com, is still out there, and there are still people serving life sentences today in this country. I do have. I've I've had wow. a lot, a lot that I when I started finding them, then I, I put them on a website. And um, after my brother's appeals, I had no attorney to talk to, or anything. So there was an attorney, who was. Um, director of an organization called Drug Sense. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Mm. It was part of Drug Policy Alliance. I think it was one that was funded by um, Peter Lewis, who funded a lot of the marijuana legalization initiatives around this around the country. And his name was Don Wirtshafter. And I saw that he, I knew I needed to talk to somebody, but I didn't know, I, I knew I had, had to start networking. So I kept calling him because he was about 60 miles from me and I, he never returned my call. And finally he called me up and said, I'm just calling you to tell you don't call me anymore. I'm not practicing law. And I said, well, if you would just li- let me come down and talk to you for a couple hours, I don't, <laughs> I just want to talk to you. And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I told him my brother, he said, put everything in your car and come down on Monday. And that was, he was really my biggest source of support right, you know, in 2006 and seven, when all the high paid attorneys were done and they were high paid, they were paid very well. So I did that. And he introduced me to a woman by the name of Nora Callahan who had an organization called Razor Wire and she was a real activist who told stories about prisoners. And she, and um, so that was when I started looking for people and started telling stories. How, how many of you identified through your work? How many people that are, have these life sentences for marijuana charges? You know, uh, Dennis Cushon, when, when, when we were working on um, Obama's clemencies, when we were trying to get statistics for that. There are not a lot of life sentences for marijuana in the federal system. He thought he was, he had started an organization called Clemency Report. He was a USA Today editor for a long time. And we, you have to kind of wiggle it out because um, the United States Sentencing Commission gives statistics, but they don't break it down to marijuana only. Mm-hmm. And they, if it's the majority marijuana, they call it a marijuana offense. Yeah. I don't know. I think probably there are not that many who have life sentences. Maybe seventy. There were maybe there were seventy to a hundred at that time. Now there are fewer because we've gotten a lot out. Yeah. But um, 
There shouldn't be any, and there shouldn't be any with de facto life sentences. I have, I'm, I'm really pretty snarky now. I, because of all the marijuana businesses, cannabis businesses that are making so much money, and they are lobbying. So well, you have John Boehner, mm-hmm. who's I know. now right. I mean, John. Who was John Boehner, who was the most anti-pot guy? You Probably the imagine. ugliest crier in, yeah, in and, all and of and the then, Congress. You know, and then he, oh, I had a change of yeah. heart. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and that's what I was saying before that it it, it really does bother me when I see the so-called green rush mm-hmm. and and the yes. one constant. In um, in the marijuana trade is uncertainty, and that's the one thing I do like seeing is that a lot of them are losing their shirts because the market's flooded, right. and the the process of growing legally in California, you're dealing with city, county, state. Everyone's taking a bite mm-hmm. out of you at every level, and to try to be compliant is is close to impossible. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's kind of a joke, frankly. And then, um, you know, the dispensaries with their frankenweed that you don't know what it was right. grown in. You don't know who grew it. And, um, and, you know, it's funny saying this because I grew up around pot and, you know, smoked it a lot as a kid. Um, but the idea that, you know, they have this, this pot that's like 40% THC or something like that, or the high, high, high concentrates, that can't be good for you, smoking <laughs> that stuff all the time with a, with a torch. Right. It looks a little right. too much like crack to me. <laughs> yes, it does. And, um, yeah. and it's just odd. You know, yeah. kind of sometimes I find myself at odds with a culture or strong edibles for people who have no experience with right. marijuana. And all of a sudden, they're having an hallucinogenic experience. Um, so... It isn't well graded. It isn't regulated. It's kind of anarchy. And yeah. I think um, uh, it's got a long way to go and kind of doing and seeing, you know, who's getting to the front of the line in North Carolina. Well, yeah. big ag, yeah. you know, probably mm-hmm. with links to tobacco and yep. things like that. Um, and I don't expect it to be any other way, but um, I certainly will make choices as a consumer as to who I patronize and who I don't. In the in the short amount of time that we were up there testifying during this legisla- legislative session, there were so many changes to the bill about who was going to be basically who was the one who was going to be making money off of yes. this. Yeah, it went from the from the interstate or multi-state providers to well, first it went to North Carolinians only. Um, and then it went to the multi-state providers and then it went to people who had 5 years of cannabis agricultural experience which basically eliminated anybody in North Carolina because it's not it's not legal here it was and I'm sitting back there as the cynic like okay clearly clearly the the strings are being pulled from behind in a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. Peter is there are some states that allow individual people to just grow a certain number of plants in their backyard. Mm-hmm. Does that solve this problem? I understand that there's capitalism involved here, but if I can grow broccoli in my backyard and not have to go buy it at the grocery store, is there not an argument to be made that I could grow four or five plants? Yeah, I think so, but I think it's harder than most people realize. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you got to have some like, skill. Yeah, it's kind of like growing It's like keeping orchids, orchids alive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then 
you know, you got that hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here we have, we got such a wet climate. You need sativas. (laughs) You do it indoors. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's, yeah. Now, Paul, you, you actually served a life sentence. Yes. I had a life sentence. I served 25 years. How did that happen? For possession of marijuana. Well, uh, I was a smuggler in California, small time. And, uh, I got arrested, and I was told that I had did all these things that I hadn't done. And I said, you people are crazy. You can't prove this. You can't prove that I... Then, then later on, they did have in the, in, the, in the trial things that I did do, and I was looking at maybe 10 years. Well, they came to me and said, oh, if you don't cooperate and tell us everything you know. I grew up on the border in San Diego and, and I knew a lot of smugglers and, and they said, if you don't tell us everything you know, you're gonna get a mandatory minimum life sentence. I said, mandatory minimum? Good God, what would the maximum be? You know? <laughs> I mean, I was afraid to ask that question. <laughs> but, um, so I said, I'm taking this to trial. You can't prove that I was in Arizona on this date. I've never been in that area of the country. You can't prove it. I was wrong. <laughs> One day before trial, I heard my name called. I was in a cell in a county jail, and I went out, and I looked around, and nobody was looking. There was no cop waving at me, you know. And uh, I just happened to look down, and there was like a sheriff standing there with these two younger guys. And they were kind of looking around, and I didn't see anybody calling me, so I went back in my cell. Well, two days later, I'm going to preliminaries for the trial, and there's those two kids there. And it turns out they had been arrested for something like drunk driving or selling a small amount of cocaine to a cop. And they, the sheriff was there saying, that's the guy you're going to testify with it. You went to this place and picked up this load of drugs and took it over here. And they were all ready and willing to do that. That's, and they do that to everybody that takes it to trial. They will find somebody and they'll come and lie about How it. How unbelievably corrupt. Yeah, and it's and it happens every day in every court. I'm 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 nothing. I mean, it was uh, it happens to everybody. Well, there was a case of a guy named uh, Brian Daniels who was a big Thai trafficker, and uh, he I think was the the head of a conspiracy that moved something like seventy tons of Thai marijuana on two boats to the United States, and um, you know, the, the boat captains got busted red-handed. Uh, engines had to be shot out of their boats, actually captured in international waters. Um, they cooperated, testified against everyone. I don't think they did maybe four years, something. Brian Daniels refused to testify against anyone, went to trial. I think he did 22, 23. Brian yeah. Daniels was a—he was lucky. He, he went to trial— I think in the 80s. Yeah. Because I found him before, it was when I was looking for the, you know, big marijuana cases and I was seeing all those 80s cases and they served, maybe they were sentenced to 20 years, but they served 10. It it all changed at the end of the 80s, but yeah. Brian Daniels was huge. Yeah. And what did you ask me? Because I forget <laughs> so much. <laughs> oh. Oh yeah. Well, I yeah. Brian, I think he. I. I don't think he served more than ten. No, no, he, he did. He did oh, twenty. Did he? Yeah, he, he did, did twenty. Well, he, he got. Talk he got in touch cooperate. with me when when he got out and died. Yeah. No, he no, got, he's still alive. 
Yeah, he. What was? Yeah. yeah where he's, is he? Uh, he may be back in Thailand. Okay. I'm not sure. Well, his family. Uh, I was. I. I was positive they, that they. It must have been. It must have. It was another guy in Thailand who had a bar. That was kind of an easy thing. Yeah. An e- it was an easy way. But uh, they did get huge sentences. They didn't get life. Yeah. And if you don't have life, you get out. Mm. You know, you can. You have a chance. Yeah, you get uh, good time. You get time. good time. So you don't so serve your whole Every day that you're a good time. boy, they take a little bit off your sentence. Well, you also yeah, see real class distinctions, like... Yeah. Some were very smart about the, you know, the way that they surrendered. They'd surrender through sort of a, an intermediary who was already negotiating their plea. They would, they would convince others. There were, you know, there was one group that moved, you know, I think a 40-ton load, probably, you know, $300 million, something like that, mm-hmm. $200 million. And um, when they got busted, they orchestrated this very dramatic surrender. I'm going to go get my co-conspirator. He's going to surrender too. And um, they coughed up like $1.5 million. And the judge was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, you guys, you're you're Later you're he's cured. finding her brother $1.4 billion. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and again, you know, they were college educated. They were presentable. They mm-hmm. The judges recognized mm-hmm. them as, oh, this could be my son. And and you really do see just that. Just regular maritime commerce. That's yeah. all, you know, just run-of-the-mill stuff. Well, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I mean, Paul, especially because he was right on the border, but I grew up near the border. And, you know, smuggling is endemic to border regions, mm-hmm. period, yeah. any border region. And, um, and, you know, it was the pot trade that I write about in Thai Stick really begins with surfers going down to go for the weekend to Tijuana and putting yeah. a— few kilos in the panels of the yeah. station wagon. Yeah, just driving them back <laughs> home. Driving them back. And yeah. that's really how it starts. Yeah. And yeah. as Beth's brother John says, you know, it's like a pickup game. Like on this day, I'm going to work with this group. That Oh, this guy talks too much. This guy drinks too much. I don't want to deal with him anymore. Do mm-hmm. You know, and you begin to see who's got tradecraft, yeah. probably like the military. Yeah. You know, who's got tradecraft, who doesn't. Who's a liability, who isn't. And... Um, you know, you have some very, very successful former military smugglers, but their biggest uh, failing is a lack of flexibility. Mm-hmm. Because as Paul will tell you, everything's changing all the time. There's floating variables, weather, law enforcement, a cop on the beach. You're coming in to bring a load and there's campers or you just you don't know. And your your ability or inability to to make variables and call variables at the line of scrimmage yeah. is what makes a, a good smuggler and a great smuggler and a horrible smuggler. My, and so there's people camping on the beach. You tell them you've got a bunch of lobsters you're bringing in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or there's rat. There's a, a rat. Like there was one group that used to dress in Smokey the Bear Rangers outfits. And um, uh-huh. and say, oh, you know, this uh, Coronado, and uh, and we've got a, a, an escaped prisoner. No, you better get out of here. He's a manic yeah. murderer, <laughs> a rabid skunks, you know. And um, you know, and they they were 
I mean, one group had an amphibious duck, mm. and they would take it out and yeah. offload the duck, and you know. So <laughs> it is remarkable. Humans are ingenious, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and when you're moving that kind of weight, mm-hmm. that's what's funny now. Like, oh, a thousand pounds and a ponga <laughs> made it into yeah. Malibu, and you know, you're talking about like, you know, uh, John Knock, like thirty ton loads were they do two a year. <laughs> That's um, what they do. Yeah, ocean-going tugs, oil rig supply vessels were very popular. Um, one military group had, you know, an ocean-going. Um, uh, no, they had a uh, oil rig supply vessel, and then they in shipping containers they had two cigarette boats painted with race colors and something like five or ten tons in each boat. They'd come right up, uh, oh, on the other side of the horizon from the Golden Gate Bridge. They'd come in at full speed under the Golden Gate Bridge with a helicopter falling and filming them like it was a race <laughs> and, and hide in plain sight. And, yeah, that's uh, right. Do you think what you just described there, the, the decrease in the volume, was the intended consequence for, like, was that a deterrent no, to, it, to pin somebody like Paul for life? No, for doing- I think it's unnecessary because they draw, again, unintended consequences. What happens when... You know, the ties get greedy, the quality of Thai pot goes down, and it's so much trouble to do this. So everybody starts growing it in America. Mm-hmm. So Northern California becomes the breadbasket of marijuana. And then we have similar weirdness with, with law enforcement in Northern California. Then what happens? The cartels come in. Right. Yeah. And we thought that the, you know, the cartels, you know, I heard recently from someone in the trade that, you know, the cartels are buying British Columbian pot to flood the California market with <laughs> and trading meth in British Columbia for the pot. Wow. I mean, this is true capitalism, right. right? This isn't that bullshit of Wall Street getting bailed out because their bets go sour. Marijuana trade is true capitalism. This is Adam Smith. He would yeah. be proud of this. <laughs> you know, you know there's no safety stuff, right? net. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Safety net. Yeah. Oh, you, you, the banks. Oh, geez. Too big to fail. Yeah, Bail no out way, all that man. coded language. No sure. They should have gone down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Stay tuned for next Monday to hear part two. <laughs>